Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 11, Check Part 2 Looking back on my life now, I am astonished that I did not progress into the opposite orthodoxy, did not become a leftist, atheist, satiric intellectual of the type we all know so well. All the conditions seemed to be present. I had hated my public school. I hated whatever I knew or imagined of the British Empire. And though I took very little notice of Morris's socialism, there were too many things in him that interested me far more. Continual reading of Shaw had brought it about that such embryonic political opinions as I had were vaguely socialistic. Ruskin had helped me in the same direction. My lifelong fear of sentimentalism ought to have qualified me to become a vigorous debunker. It is true that I hated the collective as much as any man can hate anything, but I certainly did not then realize its relations to socialism. I suppose that my romanticism was destined to divide me from the orthodox intellectuals as soon as I met them, and also that a mind so little sanguine as mine about the future and about common action could only with great difficulty be made revolutionary. Such, then, was my position. To care for almost nothing but the gods and heroes, the garden of the Hesperides, Lancelot and the Grail, and to believe in nothing but atoms and evolution and military service. At times the strain was severe, but I think this was a wholesome severity. Nor do I believe that the intermittent wavering in my materialistic faith, so to call it, which set in towards the end of the Bookham period, would ever have arisen simply from my wishes. It came from another source. Among all the poets whom I was reading at this time, I read The Fairy Queen and The Earthly Paradise entire. There was one who stood apart from the rest. Yeats was this poet. I had been reading him for a long time before I discovered the difference, and perhaps I should never have discovered it if I had not read his prose as well. Things like Rosa Alchemica and Per Amica Silencia Lune. The difference was that Yeats believed. His ever-living ones were not merely feigned or merely desired. He really thought that there was a world of beings more or less like them, and that contact between that world and ours was possible. To put it quite plainly, he believed seriously in magic. His later career as a poet has somewhat obscured that phase in popular estimates of him, but there is no doubt about the fact, as I learned when I met him some years later. Here was a pretty kettle of fish. You will understand that my rationalism was inevitably based on what I believed to be the findings of the sciences. And those findings, not being a scientist, I had to take on trust. In fact, on authority. Well, here was an opposite authority. If he had been a Christian, I should have discounted his testimony, for I thought I had the Christian placed and disposed of forever. But I now learned that there were people, not traditionally orthodox, who nevertheless rejected the whole materialist philosophy out of hand, and I was still very ingenuous. I had no conception of the amount of nonsense written and printed in the world. I regarded Yeats as a learned, responsible writer. What he said must be worthy of consideration. And after Yeats, I plunged into Metterlink, quite innocently and naturally, since everyone was reading him at that time, and since I made a point of including a fair amount of French in my diet. In Metterlink, I came up against spiritualism, theosophy, and pantheism. 
Here once more was a responsible adult, and not a Christian, who believed in a world behind or around the material world. I must do myself the justice of saying that I did not give my assent categorically. But a drop of disturbing doubt fell into my materialism. It was merely a perhaps. Perhaps, oh joy, there was, after all, something else. And, oh reassurance, perhaps it had nothing to do with Christian theology. And as soon as I paused on that perhaps, inevitably all the old occultist lore and all the old excitement which the matronette Chart had innocently aroused in me rose out of the past. Now the fat was in the fire with a vengeance. Two things hitherto widely separated in my mind rushed together. The imaginative longing for joy, or rather the longing which was joy, and the ravenous, quasi-prurient desire for the occult, the preternatural as such. And with these there came, less welcome, some stirring of unease, some of the immemorial fear we have all known in the nursery, and, if we are honest, long after the nursery age. There is a kind of gravitation in the mind whereby good rushes to good and evil to evil. This mingled repulsion and desire drew towards them everything else in me that was bad. The idea that if there were occult knowledge, it was known to very few and scorned by the many became an added attraction. We few, you will remember, was an evocative expression for me. That the means should be magic, the most exquisitely unorthodox thing in the world, unorthodox both by Christian and by rationalist standards, of course appealed to the rebel in me. I was already acquainted with the more depraved side of Romanticism, had read Anactoria and Wilde and poured upon Beardsley, not hitherto attracted, but making no moral judgment. Now I thought I began to see the point of it. In a word, you have already had in this story the world and the flesh. Now came the devil. If there had been in the neighborhood some elder person who dabbled in dirt of the magical kind, such have a good nose for potential disciples, I might now be a Satanist or a maniac. In actual fact, I was wonderfully protected, and this spiritual debauch had in the end one rather good result. I was protected, first, by ignorance and incapacity. Whether magic were possible or not, I at any rate had no teacher to start me on the path. I was protected also by cowardice. The reawakened terrors of childhood might add a spice to my greed and curiosity as long as it was daylight. Alone and in the darkness, I used my best endeavors to become a strict materialist again. Not always with success. A perhaps is quite enough for the nerves to work upon. But my best protection was the known nature of joy. This ravenous desire to break the bounds, to tear the curtain, to be in the secret revealed itself more and more clearly the longer I indulged it, to be quite different from the longing that is joy. Its coarse strength betrayed it. Slowly, and with many relapses, I came to see that the magical conclusion was just as irrelevant to joy as the erotic conclusion had been. Once again, one had changed sense. If circles and pentangles and the tetragrammaton had been tried and had, in fact, raised, or seemed to raise, a spirit, that might have been, if a man's nerves could stand it, extremely interesting. But the real desirable would have evaded one. The real desire would have been left saying, What is this to me? 
What I like about experience is that it is such an honest thing. You may take any number of wrong turnings, but keep your eyes open and you will not be allowed to go very far before the warning signs appear. You may have deceived yourself, but experience is not trying to deceive you. The universe rings true wherever you fairly test it. The other results of my glance into the dark room were as follows. First, I now had both a fresh motive for wishing materialism to be true and a decreased confidence that it was. The fresh motive came, as you have divined, from those fears which I had so wantonly stirred up from their sleeping place in the memories of childhood, behaving like a true Lewis who will not leave well alone. Every man who is afraid of spooks will have a reason for wishing to be a materialist. That creed promises to exclude the bogies. As for my shaken confidence, it remained in the form of a perhaps, stripped of its directly and grossly magical affect. A pleasing possibility that the universe might combine the snugness of materialism here and now with, well, with I didn't know what, somewhere or something beyond the unimaginable lodge for solitary thinkings. This was very bad. I was beginning to try to have it both ways, to get the comforts both of a materialist and of spiritualists, and the like. Not that the ravenous lust was never to tempt me again, but that I now knew it for a temptation, and above all, I now knew that joy did not point in that direction. You might sum up the gains of this whole period by saying that henceforward the flesh and the devil, though they could still tempt, could no longer offer me the supreme bribe. I had learned that it was not in their gift, and the world had never even pretended to have it. And then, on top of this, in superabundance of mercy, came that event which I have already more than once attempted to describe in other books. I was in the habit of walking over to Leatherhead about once a week and sometimes taking the train back. In summer, I did so chiefly because Leatherhead boasted a tiny swimming bath, better than nothing to me who had learned to swim almost before I can remember, and who, till middle age and rheumatism crept upon me, was passionately fond of being in water. But I went in winter, too, to look for books and to get my hair cut. The evening that I now speak of was in October. I and one porter had the long, timbered platform of Leatherhead Station to ourselves. It was getting just dark enough for the smoke of an engine to glow red on the underside with the reflection of the furnace. The hills beyond the Dorking Valley were of a blue so intense as to be nearly violet, and the sky was green with frost. My ears tingled with the cold. The glorious weekend of reading was before me. Turning to the bookstall, I picked out an everyman in a dirty jacket, fantasies, a fairy romance, George MacDonald. Then the train came in. I can still remember the voice of the porter calling out the village names. Saxon and sweet as a nut. Bookham, Effingham, Horsley Train. That evening I began to read my new book. The woodland journeyings in that story, the ghostly enemies, the ladies both good and evil, were close enough to my habitual imagery to lure me on without the perception of a change. It is as if I were carried sleeping across the frontier, or as if I had died in the old country and could never remember how I came alive in the new. For in one sense, the new country was exactly like the old. I met there all that had already charmed me in Mallory, Spencer, Morris, and Yates. But in another sense, all was changed. I did not yet know and I was long in learning, the name of the new quality, 
the bright shadow that rested on the travels of Anodos. I do now. It was holiness. For the first time, the song of the siren sounded like the voice of my mother or my nurse. Here were old wives' tales. There was nothing to be proud of in enjoying them. It was as though the voice which had called to me from the world's end were now speaking at my side. It was with me in the room, or in my own body, or behind me. If it had once eluded me by its distance, it now eluded me by proximity. Something too near to see, too plain to be understood, on this side of knowledge. It seemed to have been always with me. If I could ever have turned my head quick enough, I should have seized it. Now, for the first time, I felt that it was out of reach, not because of something I could not do, but because of something I could not stop doing. If I could only leave off, let go, unmake myself, it would be there. Meanwhile, in this new region, all the confusions that had hitherto perplexed my search for joy were disarmed. There was no temptation to confuse the scenes of the tale with the light that rested upon them, or to suppose that they were put forward as realities, or even to dream that if they had been realities, and I could reach the woods where Anodos journeyed, I should thereby come a step nearer to my desire. Yet, at the same time, never had the wind of joy blowing through any story been less separable from the story itself. Where the god and the Eidolon were most nearly one, there was least danger of confounding them. Thus, when the great moments came, I did not break away from the woods and cottages that I read of to seek some bodiless light shining beyond them, but gradually, with a swelling continuity, like the sun at mid-morning burning through a fog, I found the light shining on those woods and cottages, and then on my own past life, and on the quiet room where I sat, and on my old teacher where he nodded above his little Tacitus. For I now perceived that while the air of the new region made all my erotic and magical perversions of joy look like sordid trumpery, it had no such disenchanting power over the bread upon the table or the coals in the grate. That was the marvel. Up till now, each visitation of joy had left the common world momentarily a desert. The first touch of the earth went nigh to kill. Even when real clouds or trees had been the material of the vision, they had been so only by reminding me of another world, and I did not like the return to ours. But now I saw the bright shadow coming out of the book into the real world, and resting there, transforming all common things, and yet itself unchanged. Or, more accurately, I saw the common things drawn into the bright shadow. Unde hoc mihi? In the depth of my disgraces, in the then invincible ignorance of my intellect, all this was given me without asking, even without consent. That night my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me, not unnaturally, took longer. I had not the faintest notion what I had let myself in for by buying Fantasties. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, 
will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.